So let me take our last 10 minutes, and I just want to share with you a little bit from God's Word. Big question that we've been asking during this time is this. Should the church be engaging in compassion and justice ministry? Not her people, the church, the organization. Should it be engaging in compassion and justice ministry? For us to answer this question, we need to try and see what does the Bible say about this. And, and, and when I was reading the Bible, I don't find a scripture that says, tell the churches they need to organize an NGO. I don't find that in the Bible. I don't find in the Bible, organize a committee that must look after um, meet, uh, restoring the needy, except if you have a look at the six in Acts, but that was more to serve the church. We're talking about serving the needy outside. I find the scriptures full of, uh, of verses that tell us as individuals to do that, but the church seems to be a little bit different. So let's try and answer this a little bit. In the Old Testament, starting in Leviticus, God says to his people, when you're farming your land, don't go to the edges, and when um, some of your harvest falls off the wagon, leave it for the orphan, the widow, the, the alien among you, so that they can come and get food. It was standard practice for God's people to care for those who didn't have in Psalm 68 and verse 5, God's word says that God is the father of the fatherless, the defender of the widow. This is who he is. This is his character. It's his character to care for those who need compassion and who need justice. In Isaiah 58, this is the scripture that we, that burnt our hearts to starting the restore trust. God's word talks about fasting, but it's not about food. It says, is this not the fast that I chose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to, set the, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? The NIV says, and do not neglect your own flesh and blood. It then goes on to say this, that if you do this, the glory of the Lord will be your rear God. And so for many of us, as we come into church, you're just going, God, I want to meet with you today. If I said to you outside before you came in, would you like to know that the presence of God is inside there, that the glory of God would be there? Most of us who know God would go, yes, that's what I want. Well, this is what it says. If we do this, the glory of God will not be where you go. The glory of God will be ushering you from behind. You'll be in the glory of God always because this is what God wants and this is who God is. The New Testament opens out in John chapter 3 and verse 16. You know the verse, for I know the, sorry, uh, for I know the plans I have for you. Jeremiah 29 and verse 9. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world. It doesn't say for God so loved those who are going to love him. For God so loved the world. That means those who love him and those who don't love him. That means those who curse him and those who bless him. That means those who repent of their sin and those who brag about their sin. For God so loved the world. That's his character. God's word goes on to talk about the story of the Good Samaritan where uh, somebody says to God, uh, to Jesus, what's the greatest command? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Oh, and also love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's interesting because Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan who helps a Jew. These two, two people groups who hated each other. Uh, they were so different. They were different in culture. They were so different in the way they worshipped Yahweh. You could consider them different religions. And this Jewish man gets beaten up on the side of the road and he sees someone who works at the temple or someone who works at the church coming past him. And he must have thought, this guy will help me. I've seen him at the temple. But the guy keeps on going by. Then the priest comes. 
The minister of the church comes. The one who he saw administering uh, his holy duty regularly. And he walks right past the man who's been beaten up. Yet, here comes a Samaritan. I wonder what he thought when that happened. He must have looked at him and thought, this guy's going to beat me as well. Instead, a Samaritan picks him up, puts him on his donkey, binds up his wounds, takes him to an inn, pays the cost for him to stay there, and then says to the innkeeper, if there's any other cost after this, I will pay it back when I come back after my business trip. Have you ever been in a place like that where somebody goes, I'm going to take care of everything you need up until now, and then anything you have after this, I'm good for that as well. Imagine that. Jesus says this, who was the neighbor? And this, this kind of this rich man, this, this learned man, he looks at Jesus, he says, well, it, it was a Samaritan. Jesus says, that's right. You see, when we think of neighbor, we think of perhaps the person who sits next to us in church, or we think of the person who lives next to us in our home. But that's not Jesus' picture of neighbor. Jesus' picture of neighbor is anyone who's in need, probably someone who's not the same faith as you, the same culture as you, and perhaps someone who you don't even know. That's who your neighbor is. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Love God, love your neighbor, and love each other. There's this incredible story as we unpack here, and we see that historically... The church was known for its compassion. In Acts chapter 9, there's this crazy story of a woman whose name is Tabitha. Her Greek name was Dorcas, unfortunately. And she's, she's a woman who helps the poor. She's well known amongst the poor. She makes clothes for the poor and she cares for the poor. She dies. The poor send word to Peter and they bring Peter back. Peter goes into the room and I'm just imagining how this goes. If you're involved in ministry with poor and needy, you'll know it's really hard. It is really hard. It feels like there's nothing, you, there's a never-ending need. You're always giving. It feels like a bottomless pit. You just keep on giving and you never seem to make any difference. At least you think you're not making any difference. And I can imagine Tabitha's dead and she's standing before Jesus and Jesus is about to address her and she's like, oh, praise the Lord. I'm in your presence. No more hard work anymore. It's over Jesus. And I can imagine, this is not in the Bible, okay? I can imagine Jesus is going, just hold on to Peter. Peter's talking to me now. And Peter prays that she would rise from the dead. In that moment, Jesus is like, Tabitha, you need to go back. <laughs> okay. Okay. He raises her from the dead. She made such a difference in the lives of the poor and the needy that when she died, they called Peter to raise her from the dead so she could come back to them. The church has a history of this, friends. When plagues fell at Rome, the Christians were the ones running into Rome to get sick and die while everyone else was running out of Rome to be well and to be healthy. And there are many stories like this. Many stories of God's people who, who, who made sacrifice for those who showed compassion and justice on those who needed it. Why did the separation occur? Well, the separation occurred was a theological thing. It was on the back of something that was really great, but something that caused issues. For the Roman Catholic Church, for a very long time, they enjoyed the monopoly on religion, on Christian religion. They believed that salvation is through baptism, through confession, and through taking communion. Then there came a man during the 16th century called Martin Luther who started reading the scriptures and interpreting the scriptures or translating the scriptures into German so that everybody could read the scriptures in their own language. And as he started to read through the scriptures, he came across scriptures that said we are justified by faith alone, not by works. 
And he's going, hold on. The church has been teaching me that if I become a member of the church, if I get baptized, if I take communion, if I go to confession, if I, if I, if, 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 then I can only have salvation. But when I read in the scripture, it's Jesus only. That caused a schism and the Protestant Reformation started and our church is here together with all other Protestant churches because of that. But what happened is that the separation occurred to those who believed salvation is in Christ alone and those who believed that salvation was by being part of the church and good works. And so sometimes those who are on this side of here saying salvation is by Jesus alone ignore the good works. And those who are on this side over here ignore salvation is in Christ alone and lean into their good works. Friends, somewhere along the line, there's this tension that we need to manage that, that I'm saved and, and, and there's a place for good works as well because God's word says don't grow weary in doing works, in doing good works. Keep doing those things. Tim Keller says it like this. As we move across to Jesus... And we are justified by faith. All our sins are forgiven. Once that has happened, we now move across from justification to justice. It is because we've met Jesus and noticed our need for compassion and justice that we start to show compassion and justice on others who need it. It's because we've met and understand the character of our great God that we start to reflect the character of our God to those who are in need. There's a healthy tension. I shared with you a story of how in the past Christians made decisions. There were sacrificial decisions. We have a story like that in our family where Christians made a decision. A Christian man made a decision. I don't even know his name. It happened during the Second World War. In the Second World War in a German concentration camp, there was a man named Clem Gage. And he was a dodgy man who had a wicked character and was known to be one who was provocative and who would fight regularly. And one day they were digging a pit. And he was constantly fighting with the guards until the, the leader of that concentration camp had just had enough. The story goes that he lined up all of the prisoners who were busy that day. And he must have thought to himself, today I end it. This guy, I end it. And he said to Clem, so you come stand here. Everybody else stand up behind him. He says, I'm going to pick a number randomly. And that man gets shot today. And he turned his back and he walked further on. And there was a man standing in the queue who was a believer and knew Jesus. And he had a distant idea that that man's going to be shot. They're going to kill him. So he took his place out of the queue and went to him. And he said to him, you need to go stand there. I'm going to stand here because your number's going to get pulled. And I'm ready to go, but you're not. And the German soldier pulled out the number. One. And he turned around and it wasn't Clem. And he went up to the man, he put a gun at his head, and he pulled the trigger and shot the man dead right there. I'd love to tell you that Clem Gage fell to his knees and received Jesus as his Lord, but he didn't. The war ended, and he found his way back to South Africa. And he became such an alcoholic that he was known as the drunkard of Stutteram. Somewhere along the road, he met Jesus, came to faith, started to share his story in churches, became a pastor at Amalinda Baptist and also at Stutteram. On my grandfather's deathbed, in hospital, a pastor by the name of Clem Gage came to visit my grandfather and shared Christ with him. My grandfather is in the presence of Jesus because some guy that I don't even know showed compassion and justice on a man who was not a believer during the Second World War. 
He never saw it happen. He didn't do it because Clem Gage was coming to their Bible study. He didn't do it because Clem Gage was showing some interest in Jesus. He did it because he was a Christian. And friend, perhaps that's the answer. That the reason why we engage in compassion and justice ministry is not so much to lead other people to Christ, but perhaps because we have met Christ. That's why. So for us as individuals, we engage in this because we reflect God's character. Because we're believers who have experienced God's character of forgiveness and because this reflects obedience. This doesn't answer the question of, as a church, should we be engaging in this? And this is a good conversation for us to have. These are two op options that I have or two ideas that I've thought of. As a church, we'd engage in this for these two reasons. One, because we can provide a formal avenue for the body, that's you and me, to engage in compassion and justice. That if I want to save babies from being aborted in myself, I don't, I don't have the resources. But in this place, a couple of you might. And if we gather together formally, man, imagine what we could do then. Because we can organize human and financial resource around specific compassion and justice causes. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a flood in Duncan Village and uh, people lost their homes and uh, people didn't have any food. And our youth ministry decided, we're going to do something. And so we got together, we just sent the word out. We're like, guys, we're collecting bread and we're collecting clothes. Bring it in two days' time. People brought it all together and we drove across there. I think we took two combis and two trailers full of bread, full of clothes, able to get across. And I want you to know, I was not in that position to mobilize my own wallet to get a combi full of clothes and, a, and trailers full of bread. I'm not in that position, but together we can do a whole lot more. And perhaps that's the reason why as a church we engage in compassion and justice ministry. It's to mobilize God's people, to gather God's people who are like-minded into specific causes so that we can make a greater impact in this field or in this area of the needy. Friends, as a church, we're still committed to that. As a church, this is what we want to do. We want to love our city. We want to share Christ with our city. We want people to come to know Christ. And until they do, we're going to serve them. Now let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness and goodness to us. Lord, as we share the story of the last two years, Lord, I thank you for those who are fiercely committed to your call. Thank you, God, for those who have struggled through. Thank you for your provision, Lord, for your kindness. Lord, thank you for the way that you've given us this massive blessing of restoring the need and inspiring our nation. God, as we close out as a church, we ask you to continue to lead us. We know that we won't always share good stories. Lord, we've just lived through two years of that. But we know, God, that while our circumstances changed, you didn't. You are the same. And whatever the future holds, we know, Lord, that you are in control always. In Jesus' name, amen.